All of us watch TV, or at least 99.9% .9 of us watch TV. Some of us just watch shows on Netflix or Hulu, maybe you've pulled the plug on cable. Others of us still have cable, and I'm sure you have your favorite TV channels. I'm sure some of you enjoy watching HGTV, looking at all those houses you can never get. <laughs> History Channel or NBC Sports, some channel or another. You have, you have one that's your favorite. Do we have any C-SPAN fans in the house? No? I'm not surprised it's not favored by too many. <laughs> it's pretty boring. Most often it's just congressional sessions or hearings. And if we catch anything that's recorded on C-SPAN, it's usually just some sound bites that make it onto some news program or social media feeds. Sometimes our politicians ask good questions with a sincere interest in the truth. However, very often, it seems like they're only interested in making themselves look good by putting together some gotcha moment. Their motive is to further their interests and their agenda, not to shed any real light on the situation. This isn't a Republican or Democrat thing. It's a, it's a human thing. As Jesus goes about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, he encounters this kind of cynical interacting again and again. We encounter it in today's text as we turn to Matthew 16, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. As we're turning from Matthew 15 to Matthew 16, we're moving on from Jesus' feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles, which was down towards kind of the southeast coast of Galilee. And after feeding those Gentiles and really communicating um, to his disciples that he had come not only for the Jewish people, but for all people, they make their way on boat to Magadan, which is towards the north coast of Galilee. And so we pick up there as they've landed, verse 1 of Matthew 16. Matthew records, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus, and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today, it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. So, Jesus and his disciples, they're once again going about the area of Galilee, and they're encountered by these Pharisees and Sadducees who want to put Jesus to the test. Now, it's kind of 
unusual to see the Pharisees and Sadducees together if you know anything about them. They're kind of odd bedfellows. Um, the Pharisees were those men in Jewish society who were all about following the law to a T. They were legalists, and they thought that the salvation of Israel depended on the people being completely pious and righteous. But they defined piety, righteousness, in terms of following a whole bunch of rules that had kind of accumulated and grown based on their commentary on the Bible. Things that went beyond the commands of Scripture, like hand-washing. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. The Sadducees, on the other hand, um, they limited their focus to the first five books of the Old Testament and were really invested in the power structure of the temple, where everyone had to go to Jerusalem and offer sacrifices. Another difference between the two is that the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, but the Pharisees did not. They believed you died, and that was pretty much it. Um, and so you have these two parties coming together, which they usually get in arguments with each other. And in fact, we see later on the Apostle Paul uses this to an advantage, saying, well, I come from the party of Pharisees and I believe in resurrection. He gets them fighting against each other till eventually it works towards him getting outside of their judgment and them letting him go. And it's, it's just kind of funny because in having these, these two opposing parties together, we see that, once again, Jesus brings people together, even, even people who aren't really interested in following him. But truth be told, he's frustrated by the testing that they're, they're doing. In the Gospel of Mark, in eight, chapter 8, verse 12, which is a parallel account to here in Matthew, it says that Jesus sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? He's exasperated that he's doing all these things, all these healings, all these miracles, and yet, again and again, these religious leaders are trying to put him to a test. And in be more specific, it says that they demand a sign from heaven, which some commentators have suggested is they were asking for some kind of celestial sign, some kind of sign that would indicate that the apocalypse was upon them. They wanted something bigger, grander than what Jesus had already been doing. But again, Jesus has already been showing them some pretty significant signs. You go back to Matthew 9, the man who was paralyzed, that was let down through the roof. He says, I'm going to forgive this guy his sins. And the Pharisees say, how can you do that? Only God can forgive sins. And he says, oh, you think that's tough? Well, I can make the guy walk, too. And the guy gets, walks, gets up, rolls up his mat, and walks home. And that whole thing is demonstrating Jesus' authority to both heal and to forgive sins. 
And yet, these Pharisees, they, they still don't believe. And the Sadducees, along with them, they don't, they don't believe. And so, as they've put this challenge to Jesus, he doesn't take them up on it. Instead, he, repro- he replies by saying, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. So, back in the day, they were able to do some really basic weather forecasting uh, by just looking at the conditions of the skies. And Jesus says, hey, you're able to do that, and yet you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Now, what is Jesus talking about? What are the times that Jesus is talking about? Well, Jesus has been performing miracles. He's been teaching his disciples about how they should live, how to live a truly righteous life. And all this is working towards the fact that they need to be in relationship with him to even have any of that be possible. But all of that is just the outworking of one basic message that is kind of succinctly captured in the Gospel of Mark. That occur, and it, Jesus says this at the very beginning of his ministry in Galilee. In Mark 1, verses 14 through 15, it says, After John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. What is the good news of God? Verse 15, it says, The time has come. The time. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The times that Jesus is talking about is the coming of the kingdom of God, which was talked about in the prophets, that God was going to send this Messiah, this chosen one, this anointed king, who was going to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. And Jesus is telling them, this is in your midst. This has come upon you. But the Pharisees aren't recognizing this. The Sadducees aren't recognizing this. We saw this earlier in Matthew 12, when Jesus was casting out demons. It says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? So, just the general populace, they were starting to have a correct assessment of the situation. Hey, this seems like a sign of the coming of the Messiah, the son of David, the coming of the kingdom of God. How did the Pharisees respond? It says, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So Jesus is showing them the signs of the kingdom of God, and they're saying it's the kingdom of the devil. They're living in denial. And it's going to come with consequences. In Luke 19, Jesus speaks of the day in which judgment would come upon Israel, which actually did come upon Israel in the lifetime of the apostles, and we'll talk about that later in Matthew. But in verse 44 of Luke 19, speaking of Jerusalem, he says, They will not leave one stone on another, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about the kingdom of God coming. That God has come to his people, God has come to his people through the person of the Son, the Son of God, 
Jesus Christ. But the Pharisees and Sadducees won't accept it. They don't want to accept Jesus. They view Jesus as a threat to their power. They're not interested in the power and authority and rule of God. They're interested in their own religious power, their power over Jewish society. And so Jesus, recognizing this, recognizing that they're not genuinely interested in seeing a sign, that they're trying to trip him up, he tells them that he's only going to give them this sign in verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Except the sign of Jonah. Now we've heard this reference to the sign of Jonah already, back in Matthew 12. Again, the Pharisees had been putting him to the test, and this is why Jesus is frustrated here. Sounds like the exact same situation. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Again. And at that time, he said basically the same thing. A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. But in Matthew 12, he adds a little bit of extra details here. He says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So in speaking about the sign of Jonah, what Jesus is pointing to is his death and resurrection. If you know the story of Jonah, Jonah is supposed to go preach a message of repentance to Nineveh. He doesn't want to do it. flees on a boat. Big storm comes. He realizes it's God bringing judgment upon his head and it's affecting the crew. So he says, throw me into the water. They throw him into the water. He gets swallowed by this giant fish. And he manages to survive by God's protection. You wouldn't expect anyone to live otherwise. But it's a death-like experience when you're in the belly of a fish underneath the water. And so Jesus is saying, just as he was in the belly of the fish, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth. I'm going to go down to Sheol. That's the place, place of the dead, according to what we find in the Old Testament. That Jesus was going to be dead himself, to go down to death, but that three days later, just like Jonah, he would emerge alive. Now we see a similar challenge given in John 2, 18 through 21, when Jesus is preaching in the temple precincts. Some of the religious leaders, or at least it says even just the Jews, responded to him. It says, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Again, this challenge of demanding a sign is that Jesus would prove his authority, because that's what's being claimed here when he's doing these signs, that he's a person who has authority. He's not just doing party tricks. And what Jesus says to them then is, he says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? And then John adds this comment here. He says, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. So Jesus talks about the sign of Jonah as, as pointing to his death and resurrection. And John, Jesus, is talking about tearing the temp, destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. And how that's actually pointing also to his death and resurrection. Because Christ 
is the cornerstone of the living temple of God. Because the temple of God is no longer built out of marble, of stone and mortar and all these things. It's made out of the people of God. And Christ is the cornerstone and all of us are built up upon him. So Jesus is telling the Pharisees and Sadducees, the sign you're going to get is my resurrection. And basically at that time they're going to be very embarrassed because his authority is going to be undeniable. Now, that's not to say they, they're going to continue to deny it. But what can they say about a guy who, who defeats a Roman cross, who defeats the grave? How can you challenge his authority? What it also indicates when he talks about Jonah is it, it's kind of a hint of judgment because the message that Jonah brought to Nineveh was a message of judgment, that God was going to bring judgment upon Nineveh unless they repented. And this was going, what was going to happen to Israel because of their rejection of Christ. And because of that rejection, they were called to repentance. We see after Christ says, He's been raised from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. He's sent his disciples to Jerusalem to wait to receive the Holy Spirit. And when they receive the Holy Spirit, they go into the streets of Jerusalem to start preaching. And in Acts 2, this is the message that Peter preaches to the Jewish people, all gathered there in Jerusalem. In Acts 2, 24 he says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. Can't say he didn't show signs. He gave you all the signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And eventually he goes on and says that those who were hearing Peter speak were cut to the heart, and they said, what do we need to do? And, Jesus, and Peter says, you need to repent and believe, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But just as Peter says, Jesus doesn't have anything to prove to these Pharisees and Sadducees. Not only because he has already given sufficient proof of his identity and authority, but all the more because they are not interested in the truth. Their interest is in trapping Jesus and protecting their power. So Jesus and his disciples leave them, and they get on their boat to go to Caesarea Philippi, which is just to the east, so they just kind of cross the Sea of Galilee. Um, and that it's indicated in the Gospel of Mark. Picking up in verse 5, this is what Matthew says happens next. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many basketfuls you gathered? 
or the seven loaves for the four thousand? And how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So the disciples are on the boat with Jesus, and they're realizing they forgot to bring bread. And they start worrying about it. You know, how are we going to have some food? We need to be able to eat, etc., etc. A whole bunch of practical concerns and worries. Now, as they're doing this, they're already disobeying the instruction that Jesus had already given them before. In Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33, it says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So Jesus has taught them, don't worry about where your bread's going to come from. God's going to supply, and yet what are they doing? They're worrying about it. They're having this whole big conversation about, why didn't you guys bring the bread? Where are we going to get it when we land, etc. Now, What's also very surprising about their worry and concern here is what Jesus ends up pointing out himself, is that there with the guy who fed first a crowd of 5,000 people and then 4,000 people. First with just five loaves and then with seven loaves and just a few fish. He fed all those people. They saw a miracle before their eyes and they're with that guy who did that, and yet they're worrying about what they're going to eat. Now, one commentator pointed out something in the Gospel of Mark that I thought was kind of pretty cheeky on the part of Mark, if it's what this commentator is indicating. In Mark 8, verse 14, it says, The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf that they had with them in the boat. And what this commentator was saying is that this one loaf that Mark is referring to is Jesus. That Jesus is the loaf. They were worrying about bread and they totally forgot about Jesus. How can you do that? Now, as they're worried, Jesus says to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And what happens next just reveals how preoccupied they are with their food concerns. They think Jesus is literally talking about bread here. It's because they forgot bread that Jesus is making this kind of (laughs) unusual reference about being careful about the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Like, those guys, they don't carry good yeast around with them. They're not good bread bakers or or something. They should know better. Jesus has used this kind of imagery before, but in a positive way. In Matthew 13, verse 33, in a parable, he said, The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. And there he was talking about how the kingdom of God starts off small. You can't see it. 
but it works itself out. Kind of miraculously, even though we have a scientific understanding to it, but it's miraculous how something so small can expand and have such a large effect. Now here, he's trying to make some negative commentary on the Pharisees and Sadducees. The disciples are not tracking at all. And so Jesus expresses his frustration. He says, you of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Once again, we see Jesus making this comment about how they have little faith. And we've actually seen this happen three times in a boat. The first time, when they were caught in a storm, he said, and they're freaking out, why, Jesus, why are you sleeping during this storm? And he said, you guys have little faith. When the second time they were on the boat, and Peter went out to walk out to him, and he started drowning because he got afraid of the wind and the waves, Jesus said, Peter, you've got little faith. Now this third time, they're on the boat, but instead of being worried about weather concerns, they're just worried about bread. And Jesus says, you've got little faith still. I've shown you all these things, not just his teaching, but his signs, his miracles, and they still don't understand. And this lack of faith on the part of the disciples really ties into the warning that he's offering them. He hears them complaining, worrying about this bread, and he's like, these guys got to be careful because they will fall into the trap of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And it's at this point that the disciples realize that what Jesus is really talking about is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And again, this is interesting because we know that on most of the details, the Pharisees and Sadducees have completely different teachings. They're opposite from each other. In Mark 8.15, the warning sounds a little bit different. It says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, why is there this difference? Well, the meaning is equivalent. Because what Jesus is really getting at here is the power thirst of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And as it turns out, the Sadducees were kind of all right with Herod. The Pharisees were not fans of Herod. The Sadducees were all right with Herod because he built their temple. And there was a whole party called the Herodians that were... Jewish fans of, of Herod. Um, in Matthew 22, verses 15 through 16, we actually see the Pharisees and the Herodians, political opposites, working together trying to trap Jesus. You'd expect Jesus to warn them about one or the other. Be careful for the Pharisees, or be careful for the Sadducees, or those who follow Herod. But he says both. Because what both have in common is their lack of belief. And the disciples have little faith, saying these guys have a lack of belief. And they're a bunch of hypocrites. They say they're concerned about righteous, righteousness. They say that they're concerned about the things of God, and they are not at all. Now, this isn't the first time we've actually seen the Pharisees and Sadducees paired together. 
You might remember early on in Matthew, in Matthew 3, verses 7 through 12, this is the message that John the Baptist brings. It says, When John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptized, he said to them, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist calls them to produce fruit that's in keeping with righteousness because, again, they're hypocrites. They're not producing good fruit. They're just a bunch of talk. They're hypocritical. They're superficial. They're cynical in the way that they, they're interacting with Jesus. They're just hungry for power, and their motives are malicious. And so when Jesus talks about them as being like yeast, what he's really bringing to the table is this image of bad yeast. Now, I'm not a baker at all, but from what I understand, there can be, especially when you go back into the ancient context and they're making homemade yeast, you could have some bad yeast. And if that got onto the bread, it would spoil it all. That's what's going on here. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they're teaching in ways spoil things. They're spoiling the nation of Israel. Now we ask, does Jesus have reason to have concern among his disciples? Well, remember, Judas is one of his disciples. And in John 12 we see some behavior on the part of Judas that kind of matches up with the behavior of the Pharisees and Sadducees. A woman is anointing Jesus' feet with perfume. It's a beautiful act of worship. A woman who's lived a life of sin and realized that she's forgiven. But in John 12, starting in verse 4, it says this, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Certainly sounds very righteous. Something you might, an objection you might even expect a Pharisee to raise. Now John adds this commentary here. He says, He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So it wasn't as though Judas, at the end, when he was offered money to betray Jesus, was already, he all of a sudden turned bad. No. He was already spoiled a long way, much earlier on in Jesus' ministry. And he was participating in the mindset. His mindset was the same as that of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, when we get into the early life of the church, We look to the Corinthian church. Paul writes a letter to the church in Corinth and tells them that they have some work to do. There's some sexual immorality going on in their church that they're leaving unaddressed. In fact, it seems like they're, they're proud of the fact that it's going on. And as he's addressing them, he brings up again this idea of yeast. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, Paul says to them, Your boasting is not good. 
Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Just as Paul is saying here, and what Jesus is saying, the disciples are to be marked by sincerity and truth. We see the complete opposite with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're insincere. They're not interested in the truth. They don't care about it. They're deceitful. Now, last week, we dealt with the old concern of the differences between Jew and Gentile, but came to see how it continues to be relevant today insofar as God promises to save the people of Israel. Those promises have been shown to also encompass the Gentiles as well. That in Jesus, all people can be saved. Now this week, we have this warning about Pharisees and Sadducees. To be wary of their teaching. But there's no Pharisees and Sadducees around anymore. There's no Herodians around anymore. In a sense. Yes, we no longer have those factions. But don't we continue to have people like them in the world? Without much effort, you can certainly find people who love power more than truth. Look around, and you will find people who are only interested in using Jesus. They don't want to learn from him. They want to leverage him to gain more power and profit. American politicians and foreign politicians do it at an obscene level. You can look no further than Vladimir Putin. You can see how even the head of the Russian Orthodox Church has basically given his blessing to what they're doing over there. Likewise, for every seeker who has honest questions about Jesus, you also find those who are only interested in assaulting the Christian faith with questions. They demand signs, but they don't want to believe. They want to overcome Jesus, not understand him, and certainly not obey him. Now, it's very easy for us to judge these sorts and say to ourselves, never me. But this is precisely Jesus' warning to us. Like the first disciples, we can get so preoccupied with looking for bread, caught up with our daily concerns, that we completely miss what Jesus is telling us. When that happens, we become vulnerable to temptation. The temptation to shape Jesus according to what we think we need, rather than submitting to him so that Jesus can shape us. Problems spread in the church when any one of us here 
come here for something other than Jesus? If being part of the church is about your comfort or your pride or your power or your pleasure or about anything else that could be possibly imagined, and you're sprinkling the yeast of hypocrisy and sincerity and ulterior motives on the good dough of the church. And we will spoil it if we don't guard ourselves. The Pharisees and Sadducees consciously denied that Jesus was introducing the kingdom of God. They wouldn't recognize his power and authority because they were obsessed with protecting their own. Functionally, the disciples were faulting faltering in a similar way. They still hadn't fully comprehended that Jesus was the promised king. They still hadn't fully recognized the full breadth of his authority. That Jesus was literally ushering in the age of God's kingdom on earth. They still had little faith. Complete understanding would come after his resurrection and ascension. And it's the bedrock reality of Christ's authority as king that gave them the resolve to stand undaunted in the face of the Roman Empire. You and I will not remain loyal disciples today if we do not recognize the full scope and reality of the authority of Jesus Christ. We will not resist the selfish schemes of our hearts We will not repent of hypocrisy. And we will certainly not stand in the face of empire. If we are of little faith, then we must get more faith. We must put our faith in Christ. Confess daily that Jesus is King. And guard against every and any form of betrayal which would lead us to pray. Father, we confess that as disciples of Jesus Christ, we can so often become preoccupied with our daily needs, with our concerns of making a life for ourselves in this world, that we can, we can become vulnerable to the ways of the Pharisees and Sadducees who are interested in collecting power for themselves and making their own kingdom here on earth. That like them, we can deny the reality of your kingdom. Father, protect us from their ways, Father. And press upon us that you have come to us through the person of Jesus Christ, that in him we have the bread of life, that in him we have the salvation which is promised, that sign of his resurrection that we will share in, Father. Father, help us to have more faith that we would not be those who have little faith, Father, but that we would trust completely in Jesus Christ and stand firm against those who seek to trip up and destroy 
the gospel, the good news, to undermine it, Father, and co-opt it. Help us to be faithful, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The Lord bless you as you go forth this day. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon I offer to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Scituate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Scituate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through the Gospel of Matthew. It's our joy to welcome you into our community.